Alright folks, I'm gonna read um, some pages from this book called Indica. Um, in Indica <laughs> Exchange between India and the Western world, okay? Cambridge University Press Who's this written by? From the Earliest Times to the Fall of Rome by H.G. Rawlinson Professor of English at the Deccan College, Pune, author of Bactria. Okay. All right. Um, let me see. All right, I'm going to read the preface and then some more stuff. All right. I have attempted in this monograph to furnish a succinct account of the intercourse between India and the Greco-Roman world from the earliest times to the fall of Rome. This subject has never, so far as I am aware, been dealt with as a whole in any English work. Yet it is replete with interest to the student of Hellenism in its wider and more neglected aspects, and to Orientalists who depend largely upon references in Greek and Roman authors for information about many obscure points of Indian history. I have so far as possible consulted every passage bearing upon India in Roman and Greek literature. Many, but not quite all, of these passages have been collected, annot annotated, and translated by the late Dr. J.W. McCrindle in his six valuable volumes of translations of such references. On these, on these, the present monograph is very largely based, though I have in nearly every case referred to the original text rather than to the translation. Alright, blah, blah, blah. I'm gonna just... Okay. It's kind of interesting because I have actually been to Pune when I was a kid. Alright, chapter one. From the earliest times to the fall of Babylon. Quinquiramis of Nineveh from distant Ophir, rowing home to haven in sunny Palestine, with cargoes of ivory and apes and peacocks, sandalwood, cedarwood, and sweet white wine. J. Macefield. From prehistoric times, three great trade routes have connected India with the West. The easiest, and probably the oldest of these, was the Persian Gulf route running from the mouth of the Indus to the Euphrates and up the Euphrates to where the road branches off to Antioch and the Levantine ports. Then there was the overland route from the Indian passes to Balkh and from Balkh either by river down the Oxus to the Caspian and from the Caspian to the Euxine, or entire land, entirely by land, by the caravan road which skirts the Carmanian Desert to the north, passes through the Caspian Gates, and reaches Antioch by way of Tesiphon and Hecatompylus. 
Lastly, there is the circuitous sea route down the Persian and Arabian coasts to Aden, up the Red Sea to Suez, and from Suez to Egypt on the one hand, and, and Tyre and Sidon, Sidon, Sidon on the other. Hold on, let me just double check what year this was published. 1916, okay, that's cool. Alright, uh, Okay, um, okay, it must not be supposed, of course, that merchandise traveled from India to Europe direct. It changed hands at great emporia like Balk, Aden, or Palmyra, and was often, no doubt, bartered many times on the way. This accounts for the vagueness and inaccuracy inaccuracy of the accounts of India which filtered through to the West in early times. A story is always vastly changed in passing through many hands. I agree. I think basically most of religion is just that, is all these indigenous, local, native legends, myths, whatever you want to call them, that have been <laughs> just... Completely butchered. Okay. Trade between the Indus Valley and the Euphrates is no doubt very ancient. The earliest trace of this intercourse is probably to be found in the cuneiform inscriptions Excuse me. of the Hittite kings of Mitanni in Cappadocia, belonging to the 14th or 15th century B.C. These kings bore Aryan names and worshipped the Vedic gods Indra, Mitra, Varuna, and the Asvins, whom they call by their Vedic title Nasatya. They were evidently closely connected, though we cannot yet precisely determine how, with the Aryans of the Vedic age who were at that time dwelling in the Punjab. It has been claimed that the word Sindhu, found in the library of Asurbanipal, is used in the sense of Indian cotton, and the word is said to be much older, belonging in reality to the Akkadian tongue, where it is expressed by ideographs, meaning vegetable cloth. Hmm. Asurbanipal is known to have been a great cultivator and to have sent for Indian plants, including the wool-bearing trees of India. At any rate, we know that the cotton trade of western India is of great antiquity. The Indians, when the Greeks first came into contact with them, were dressed in... Excuse me, goddamn in wool grown on trees so okay this is based talking about cotton I'm, I'm assuming in the rig veda night and dawn are compared to two female weavers we may perhaps trace to this source the greek uh it's in greek i can't read it the arabic satin a covering and the hebrew sadin 
Yo, is this? Huh. Similarly, the Hebrew Karpus and the Greek Kap, I guess something, come from the Sanskrit Karpasa. See, okay, so this is what I'm saying. Even fucking Hebrew. He said Hebrew, Arabic, Greek, <laughs> Sanskrit, Karpasa. Logs of Indian teak have been found in the Temple of the Moon at Mugair, the Ur of the Chaldees, and in the Palace of Nebuchadnezzar both belonging to the 6th century BC and we know that the trade in teak, ebony, sandalwood and blackwood between Baragaza and the Euphrates was still flourishing in the 2nd century AD. In the swampy country at the mouth of the Euphrates, nothing but the cypress grows well. On the obelisk of Shalmaneser III, 860 BC, are apes Indian elephants and Bactrian camels. And in one of the Jataka stories called the Baberu Jataka, we hear of Indian merchants who took periodical voyages to the land of Baberu, Babylon. So Baberu means Babylon. Interesting. Baberu. Baberu. What does that sound like? Barbarian, the barbarians, Barbaru. Doesn't that sound like the barbarians? Okay, there were very few birds in that country, and on their first visit, the merchants brought with them an Indian crow, with excited great, which excited great admiration. Doesn't this kind of sound like Noah's Ark story? Like, what did you ever hear of this? I never heard of this story. But on the on a subsequent voyage, they took a wonderful performing peacock, and the poor crow found himself quite eclipsed. Indians appear in those days to have been experienced sailors. Early Indian literature contains abundant references to ships and seafaring, and bears testimony to the skill and daring of Hindu mariners in remote times. There are many allusions in the Rig Veda to voyages by sea. In the longest of these passages, we hear of voyages to distant islands and galleys with a hundred oars. <laughs> Ben-Hur Evidently, from early days, the Indian seamen built ships larger than those usually employed even at a much later date in the Mediterranean. Okay, once again, just dick measuring. In the story of the invasion of Ceylon, Ceylon is basically Sri Lanka, probably in the 6th century BC by the Bengal prince Vijaya and his followers, we hear of a ship large enough to hold over 700 people. Yeah, another interesting thing is, um, another perspective was Jesus could have been viewed as a one of these slave ships that the uh, uh, the Vatican used when they went around <laughs> conquering Africa okay 
hold over 700 people. This may be an exaggeration, but references to ships holding 3, 5, and even 700 people are to be found in the Jataka stories. Indeed, Buddhist literature in particular abounds in allusions to sea voyages, and we gather that traders visited Babylon, Ceylon, and the Golden Chersonese, Chersonese, the Suvarnabhumi. The chief ports were Champa and Tamralipti on the east coast, and Bar Barukacha and Supara on the west. The exports in which they dealt were various kinds of birds and beasts, including, curiously enough, the valuable Sindh horses. Oh my goodness, look at that. Sindh horses, S-I-N-D, horses. Ivory, cotton goods, jewels, gold, and silver. Emigration was not uncommon. One of the most interesting of these early references to seaborne traffic is to be found in the Kevadu Sutta, where we read how long ago merchants sailed far out of sight of the coast, taking shore-sighting birds, which were released from time to time in order that they might guide the mariners to land. How fucking brilliant. Look at that. Noah, right there. The oh my goodness, man. They use the birds to find land, man. Fucking genius. Alright, this custom, which reminds us of the familiar episode of the story of Noah, is mentioned by Pliny and Cosmas Indicopleustus as existing among the Sinhalese. Yeah, the Sinhalese are, I think... Uh, the Sinhalese are aren't they the South Indian something? Sinhalese. And interestingly enough, if you go over to Africa, Sinha becomes Simba, which means lion. And even in South India, this Sinhalese group of people or whatever they're they're represented by lions so i'm just saying it's interesting okay the persian gulf trade was at first principally in the hands of the chaldeans a troublesome nation given to piracy but they were exterminated in 694 bc by sennacherib cherub senna cherub with the aid of a great fleet which he built upon the Tigris. Senna Cherub or Carib. Sounds like the cherubim. Anyways, Senna Cherub, after breaking up this nest of pirates, sent them to dwell in Gerha, where the heat was so fierce that they were forced to use blocks of salt to build their houses. What? Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot's wife turned into a block of salt. Sent them to dwell in Gerha. Interesting. The trade of the Persian Gulf then fell into the hands of the ubiquitous Phoenicians, a colony of whom, according to Justin, had settled in the Babylonian marshes, having 
been driven out of their own land by earthquakes. Hmm. Abundant evidence of the presence of these merchants was visible in the days of Strabo on the Bahrain Islands at the mouth of the Persian Gulf. These remains have lately been excavated and many interesting relics were recovered. The Bahrain Islands were the port of call where ships took in water before setting sail for India, as the inhospitable Mekran coast had nothing to offer them. Also an interesting thing about the story of Noah is someone had related that or compared that with the monsoon season in India where quite literally sometimes you'll have fucking non-stop rain for like 30 40 days straight that's the indian monsoon It'll like rain every fucking day so i mean just saying if you want to look for ideas you can find them okay um where was i the immense trade with all nations carried on by the phoenicians may be estimated by studying the remarkable passage in which the prophet Ezekiel prophesizes the overthrow of the great city of Tyre in 573 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar II. Tarshish, Tarshish was thy merchant by reason of the multitude of thy riches, with silver, iron, tin, and lead. They traded for thy wares. Dan also and Javan going to and fro occupied in their fair in thy fairs bright iron cassia and calamus were in thy market and in their wailing they shall take up a lamentation for thee and lament over thee saying who is there like tyre like her that is brought to silence in the midst of the sea when thy wares went forth out of the seas thou fillest many peoples thou didst enrich the kings of the earth with the multitude of thy riches and thy merchandise herodotus refers to the phoenician phoenician ships as taking to long voyages loading their ships with assyrian and egyptian wares in 606 BC came the overthrow of the Assyrian Empire and Babylon took the place of Nineveh as queen of Western Asia. In the crowded marketplaces, so, <laughs> I mean, just saying, like, if, if we look at the world map, Europe and Asia, Eurasia, were basically one whole, I mean, Israel is in Asia, man. That's why they, they say Western Asia and then Eastern. It's, it was all one giant lily pad. Okay, in 66 BC came the overthrow of the Assyrian Empire, the Babylon, and Babylon took the place of Nineveh as queen of Western Asia, and the crowded marketplaces of that great city met the races of the world. Ionian traders, Jewish captives, Phoenician merchants from distant Tarshish, and Indians from the Punjab who who came to sell their wares. At Babylon, says Barossus, there we go again with the S-U-S ending, like Jesus, like Pegasus, okay. There was a great resort of people to of various races 
who inhabited Chaldea and lived in a lawless fashion. We have already referred to the Jataka story of the Indian merchants who went to Babylon. A Babylonian colony may have sprung up on the borders of India, for Strabo tells us that the followers of Alexander found at Taxila a marriage market conducted on the well-known Babylonian principle. Yeah, look up where Taxila is. It's like right there on top of the... See, intercourse to here just basically means exchange. So that's why I said that's why I said exchange earlier. Because if I say intercourse, some people might giggle. <laughs> the exchange between India and the Semitic nations was, however, mostly carried on by sea. Also, if you just go look up the word Semitic, definition of the word Semitic, just go look it up. Look up what that means. <laughs> the journey from the defiles of the Hindu Kush to the Mediterranean ports was long and dangerous. The mountains, the deserts, and the many wild tribes which lay in the path presented an almost insurmountable barrier. The old story of the invasion of India by Semiramis is, of course, a fable and emanates from the notorious Tessias. There is, however, abundant evidence that such a route existed from very early times. An axe head of white jade, which could only have come from China, has been found in the second city of Troy. Do you see when I say China is older than your grandmother? No matter how far back you go in history, fucking China always seems to be there. This is what I'm saying, like... These fuckers have been around for a long time. Okay. The most ancient part of Indian art, says a recent critic, belongs to the common endowment of early Asiatic culture, which once extended from the Mediterranean to China and as far south as Ceylon. Ceylon is Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka getting fucked right now? Yeah, that's Ceylon, Sri Lanka. From the Mediterranean to China to Sri Lanka where some of the most archaic motifs survive in the decoration of pottery. Do you understand? We are all fucking related. We go way back to no more than a group of five to 6,000 people. We all come from the same fucking stock. And here we are still killing each other and raping each other and stealing from you. It's like... Fucking, this is Game of Thrones right here, man. We are living it. To this, my Sinian faces belong all the simpler arts of woodwork, weaving, metalwork, pottery, etc., together with a group of designs, including many of a remarkably Mediterranean aspect, others more likely originating in Western Asia. The wide extension and consistency of this culture throughout Asia in the 2nd millennium BC throws important light on ancient trade exchange at the time when the eastern Mediterranean formed the western boundary of the civilized world. I mean, it's interesting because intercourse actually would be a better word because a lot of that was also going on. <laughs> everybody was fucking everybody, man. Okay, uh, well, civilized world. No doubt the caravans traveled from immemorial times to the great 
Emporium of Bactra. I'm assuming that's Bactria now. Bactra, where the roads from India, China, and the West converged. There, the cargoes were shipped on to rafts and floated down the Oxus to the Caspian, and thence partly by land and partly by river to the Euxine. Or else, traveling entirely by land, the merchants followed the great road which still skirts the Carmanian Desert to the north, passes through the Caspian Gates, and crossing the Euphrate, Euphrates at Thapsacus, ends at Antioch and the Levantine ports. Basically, Africa, Europe, Asia, all this connects right there on the landmass, physical landmass we called Israel right now. The so basically, whoever controls the land controls everything. Whoever makes the borders basically controls the flow of trade, money, goods, everything. And that is being done by who? This is pretty simple, man. This is before. It's, it's pretty simple. Okay, the third and perhaps the most important of the trade routes between India and the West was that which ran from the mouth of the Red Sea <laughs> to India up the Arabian coast. So like I'm saying, that little strip of land <laughs> and monotheism, just saying, stories, <laughs> stories. Its importance lies in the fact that it linked India not only to the gold fields and the fabulously wealthy incense country of southern Arabia and Somaliland, but to Egypt and Judea. Through Judea, Indian goods found another outlet by way of the adjacent ports of their allies of Tyre and Sidon to the Mediterranean. So this is what I'm saying. By the time Indian goods went up to the British, that area, they were like, holy shit balls. We need to go and just take over this golden goose. That's history. That's how simple it is, man. Through Judea, Indian goods found another outlet by way of the adjacent ports of their allies of Tyre and Sidon to the Mediterranean. For unknown years, the Egyptians had traded in the Red Sea, fetching spices from the land of Punt and from Arabia, Felix. No doubt, from time to time, Indian goods were brought in Arabian vessels to the ancient emporium of Aden, but the Egyptians were poor sailors. About the 13th about the 13th century before Christ, however, a great impetus to the Red Sea trade was given if we may trust the Jewish chroniclers by the Phoenicians. David, king of Judah, had conquered Edom, Edom and had thrown open to the Jews the valuable ports of Elath and Ezion-Geber. It's interesting, this word Ezion is spelled E-Z-I-O-N, Zion, Geber. He had also formed an alliance with Hiram, king of Tyre. Solomon, on his ascension, suggested to Hiram's son the, pro the, propriety, the propriety of establishing a Phoenician trading station in the Red Sea, and the Tyrian monarch, nothing 
loath equipped a fleet nothing loath what Tarian monarch nothing loath equipped a fleet of ships of Tarshish at Ezion Geber the navy of Tarshish made a triennial voyage to the east bringing back with them a vast quantity of gold and silver ivory apes peacocks and great plenty of almug trees and precious stones the port at which they shipped these goods was ophir a place famous for its gold so much so indeed that the expression gold of ophir became proverbial in hebrew at first sight, it appears as if the port of Ophir must have been somewhere on the Indian coast. India was famous for its gold. If you f just follow the history of gold, Ophir appears as, it's in Greek, in the Septuagint, and Sophir is a term applied in Coptic to southern India. Abira and Supara have also been proposed. Josephus even locates it in the Golden Chernoses. Then again, most of the articles of commerce mentioned in the Jewish annals have names which may be traced to Indian, or Indian originals. Thus, ivory is in the Hebrew text Shen Habin, Elephant's Teeth, a literal translation of the Sanskrit Ibhadanta. Ibadanta. Interest. The Almug is in Sanskrit and Tamil Valgu. The Almug is in Sanskrit and Tamil Valgu. The Vulgate. The word used for ape is not the ordinary Hebrew one, but Kof. Obviously, the Sanskrit Kapi. Peacocks are. Tukiim, the Tamil Tokay. Again, there is the curious resemblance between the Mahoshatha Jataka and the story of the judgment of Solomon. In the former story, the Buddha incarnate in a former birth as vizier of the Raja of Benares has to adjudicate between two women each of whom claims a certain infant. Now, one of the women was a Yakshini, or ghoul, or ghoul, sorry, who had stolen the child to devour it. The Buddha ordered one woman to seize the child's head and the other his legs and to pull, and each should keep what they got. The ghoul, of course, assents, but the rightful mother consents to give up her share of the infant rather than hurt him. To her, the Buddha gives the child. This story, however, may have reached India from Babylon at the time of the captivity. Well, Mr. Jordan Maxwell will tell you that Solomon didn't exist, so <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Mr. Jordan Maxwell will tell you that all this monotheistic religions come from India. Anyways. Anyways. <laughs> uh, again, it is unlikely that the Phoenicians, bold sailors as they were, ever accomplished the lengthy, lengthy voyage from Suez to an Indian port, particularly a South Indian port, 
in the primitive vessels than in use. It must be remembered that early mariners could not go very far from the coast, and the voyager would have to go right up the Arabian and Persian coast an enormously long way. It is much more probable that Ophir was an entrepot on the shores of Arabia, where Indian and Phoenician alike brought their wares and bartered them. Primitive trade, it has been said, passes from tribe to tribe and port to port. Ophir was probably at the mouth of the Persian Gulf on the coast of Oman. Hither came from export the gold from the rich fields of southern Arabia, which has made Ophir famous. After the death of Solomon, the trade of Ezion-Geber gradually declined with the checkered fortunes of the Jewish nation. Jehoshaphat tried to revive it, but his fleet met with disaster outside the port. The Edomites revolted and were repressed with difficulty, though the neighboring port of Elath was in Jewish hands until its capture by Tiglath-Pileser. The general effect of this exchange upon any of the countries concerned was not very great. Articles of commerce bearing their Indian names reached, as we have already seen, the Western world from time to time. Indian ivory became widely known in the Mediterranean at an early date. The Egyptian word ibu, like the Italian ebur, is clearly Sanskrit iba. The Greek root I'm assuming this elephant, like the Hebrew word, appears to represent Iba Danta. Yeah, perhaps with the Arabic prefix L. Yeah, it's uh, Sanskrit is the root of all language, man. Well, I mean, it at least uh, at least for Latin and Greek, definitely Sanskrit has an influence. Okay. Um. Okay, like the Hebrew word appears to represent Ivodanta, perhaps the Arab. Okay, if this is so, the word is an interesting hybrid, betraying an Indian origin and Arabian conveyance to Europe. The word is found in Homer, as is also the Greek Greek word, the Sanskrit kastira. Tin and ivory reached Greece at an early period from India. The ape, like the ivory of Solomon, also found its way to Egypt if the Egyptian kafu, like the Hebrew kof, comes from kapi. Among, sub among substances which originally came from Dravidian ports, we may mention rice, which, like ivory, was originally brought to Europe by Arab traders. The Tamil arisi became aruz in Arabian and opul in, oh i don't know how to say that in greek so you see it's, it's just from the sound you can hear it from the tamil arisi by the time i went got to the to the middle east it became arisi became aruz and then by the time it went to greek it became whatever that word is other articles of trade which reached europe at various dates from dravidian ports are aloes tamil agil Hebrew ahal, cinnamon, Tamil karpu, Greek, whatever, first mentioned by Tessius, 
Ginger, Tamil, Inchiver, Greek, whatever. <laughs> Pepper, Tamil, Pipali, Greek. Okay, and then the barrel stone, Tamil, and Sanskrit, Viduria, Greek. Okay, the presence of the African baobab, Adan Sonia Digitata, <laughs> in the Tina Valley district has been traced to early traders from Africa. Whether India was affected in the prehistoric period of her contact with her nearer and more powerful neighbors, the Assyrians and Babylonians, is an interesting question. The Brahmi script, the parent script of India, was borrowed from Semitic sources probably about the 7th century BC. The influence of Babylonian mythology may perhaps be detected in Hindu literature. The myth of the fish incarnation of Vishnu in the Satapatha Brahmana is reminiscent of the Babylonian stories of the flood. Chaldean astronomy may be responsible for the division of the sky into 24 nakshatras and perhaps we may trace to this ultimate source the division of the week into seven days named after the sun, moon, and five planets. Uh, I think even now, I think people agree that Indian astrology is probably the most oldest, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Anyways, this, however, was apparently borrowed directly from Alexandria by the Indians, as it is only mentioned in the later astronomical works. The, the relation between the earliest Indian and Babylonian weights and measures is obscure. In architecture, India owed very little to Babylon, though she borrowed certain details of ornamentation, such as the bell capital and the lion pillar, indirectly from Assyria through Persia. Interesting. I mean, because I think some of the Persians did come to India, so... Babylonian architecture, owing to the lack of good building stone, was never remarkable. Babylonian temples are massive but shapeless structures of crude brick supported by buttresses. Alright, chapter 2, the Persian period. Herodotus Setius. Setesius, sorry. In 538 BC, the last of the great Semitic empires of Western Asia came to an end. Cyrus and his Iranians stormed the walls of Babylon, and the Persian monarch took the title of Lord of Sumer, Akkad, Babel, and the four quarters of the world. His successor, Darius, built up a great kingdom on the foundations thus prepared for him, his far-sighted schemes, which gained for him the contemptuous epithet, what it's in Greek, the peddler, from his nobles, included the conquest of the remote Iranian tribes on the east of the Carmanian desert. Darius, however, did not stop here. The wealth of the nations of the Indus Valley had long been known to the Assyrians and Babylonians, and he determined to add this destruction district to his domains. He probably, like Alexander, advanced upon India from Bactra. 
from Bactra and reaching the river Indus at the town of Caspirus, Caspapyrus, Caspapyrus, perhaps Cassiapapura, a frontier city of Gandhara on the Scythian borderland, says Hecateus, sent an expedition under a Greek mercenary, Skylax of Carianda, to explore the river down to its mouth, and when he reached the sea, to sail home, examining on the way the coastline and its chief features. Presumably, Skylax had orders to find his way to the Red Sea and not to return by the shorter Persian Gulf route with which probably the Persians were already perfectly well acquainted. At any rate, he found his way after an adventurous voyage of two and a half years' duration to Arsinoe, the, the modern Suez already used by the Egyptians for trade with the East. From the time he took, he, we may infer that Skylax proceeded in a leisurely fashion, probably inquiring his way from port to port and trading as he went. His road must have lain along the old trade route to Ophir and from Ophir to Aden along the Arabian coast. To Skylax, as far as we know, belongs the double distinction of having been the first Greek to visit India and to make the Red Sea voyage. Moses? <laughs> Hold it. All right. The latter feat was not repeated till the days of Eudoxus, Eudoxus, three centuries later. The memoirs of Skylax have unfortunately perished though they may have been utilized by Herodotus. Darius annexed the Indus Valley and made it the 20th satrapy of the Persian Empire. At that time, the alluvial gold fields of Dardistan produced an immense quantity of gold, and the new province paid to the great king the enormous tribute of 360 talents of gold dust. They also supplied a light division to the Persian forces. The statement of Herodotus that the Persian fleet frequented the sea seems to imply that Darius considerably developed the sea traffic. The Greeks, long before the annexation of the Punjab by Persia, appear to have heard in a dim sort of way of India. Homer speaks of two races of Ethiopians, the Western or African Ethiopians and the Eastern Ethiopians. See what I'm saying? See what I'm saying? So South India, Southern Indians and Ethiopians, I mean, they very they look very similar. The word Ethiopian is applied by Herodotus to the dark Dravidians of southern India, and probably even in the Homeric age it was thought that Asia and Africa united so as to enclose the Indian Ocean like the Mediterranean. In that case, there would be no incongruity in applying the word Ethiopian to the dark peoples of India and Africa alike. Even in those early days, Indian goods reached Europe as the words 
it's in Greek, testify. The first writer, however, to mention India is the father of Greek geography, Hecateus of Miletus, a contemporary of Skylax. In the fragments of his lost work, the Periegesis, the Periegesis, eight Indian names occur. The Indus, the Indi, the city of Papyrus, the country of the Gandhari, the Opie, and the Kaliati, Kaliati, the Schiapodes, and the city of Aragante. From his mention of Caspapyrus, we may conclude that Hecateus came to know of India through the narrative of Skylax. It is interesting to notice that the Greeks talked of the Indus and Indians, whereas the inhabitants of the country itself spoke of Sindhu Sindhava. Later travelers noticed this with surprise. Indus in Colis Sindhus ap okay, Apelletus Est, says Pliny, and the author of the Periplus says that the river is locally called Synthus. The Persians softened the initial S more suo to H. The Avesta word is Hindu. The Ionians, having no aspirate, made the word into whatever. Indus. I guess it's Indus. The word reached Greece through Persia. In the same way, the Oriental nations heard chiefly of the Greeks through the Ionian traders who had colonized the coasts of Asia Minor. The word for Greek in Hebrew the word for Greek in Hebrew and Sanskrit is Yavana and Ya Yao Yauna in Old Persian. Yavana Javana this must date from a time when the Degama was still in use. What? Degama? It is a literal transcript of... Okay, Yona, the Prakrit word, is not, of course, derived from Yavana, but it is a separate rendering of whatever. Herodotus, the first Greek writer about India whose account has survived, was born in 484 BC at... Ali Carnassus, not far from Karyanda, the home of Skylax, to whom we may owe not a little of his knowledge. He tells us that the Indians are the last of all the nations on the eastern side of the world, for beyond the Punjab lay the limitless Rajputana desert, the Marustali, or place of death, stretching, as Herodotus thought, to the end of the world. Indians, he says, are of many nations, each speaking a different tongue. He divides them, however, into two broad classes, the dark, barbarous nomads living in the marshes and the paler, refined Aryans of the Kaspapura and Paktu districts of northern India, whom he appropriately compares to their Iranian kinsmen of Bactria. Now, I'm not going to get into who's right and who's right. I don't know, okay? Besides, I'm just trying to look at all the different sides and see what makes sense. All right. 
Besides these, he adds, there are other Indians in the far south out of the sphere of Persian influence who resemble the Ethiopians. These are plainly the Dravidian peoples. The Aborigines were, in his opinion, degraded savages. Of course. <laughs> Those of the marshes of the Indus wore clothes made of rushes, lived like their neighbors, the famous Ichthyopagi of the Mekran, on raw fish, and made rude boats out of a single joint of the gigantic reeds growing near the river. A neighboring tribe, the Padei, who may be the the Pil and other aboriginal races of central India, where such practices were common till quite recent times, even killed and ate their sick relatives. <laughs> Interesting. This disgusting custom, which originates in a religious superstition, was also carried on by certain Scythian tribes. Herodotus, Herodotus also makes a very interesting reference to a, to a religious sect who killed nothing that had life, lived on a grain like millet, and had no houses. It is impossible to help wondering whether we have not here a reference to the Buddhists. Gautama, it will be remembered, died in 488 BC, four years before Herodotus was born. Herodotus is the first writer to mention the famous legend of the Indian ants who watched over the gold which the Indians carried off in order to pay the tribute due to the great king. What? It was said that this gold was guarded by gigantic ants, but the Indians, mounted on swift she-camels, plundered the gold at midday when the ants were asleep in their holes and made off, hotly pursued. These ants were smaller than dogs but larger than foxes and threw up the gold in excavating their burrows. What? Some of them were in the possession of the great king. Later writers talk of having seen their skins or even their horns. This curious story arose from the Sanskrit pipilika, ant gold, a term applied to alluvial gold from its resemblance to the earth of anthills. Pipilika. The gold was carried off from the miners of Dardistan, who still keep fierce yellow mastiffs to guard their houses. These mastiffs were the ants of the legend. The horns, which Pliny asserts, were hung in the temple of Her Hercules at Erythrae, where the horns of wild sheep, which mounted in handles, are still used by the miners and farmers of Ladakh as pickaxes. The gold fields of Dardistan were quickly exhausted, perhaps by the exorbitant demands of Persia. They are seldom mentioned in later literature, though Alexander, had he found them working, would have almost certainly exploited them. Today, they yield only insignificant quantities. 
On the whole, the account given by Herodotus of the Indian satrapy is careful and accurate. It is no doubt drawn from the lost narrative of Skylax or from other first-hand evidence. He mentions, among other things, the extremes of heat and cold of the Punjab, the size of the animals and birds, the crocodiles of the Indus, in the Indus, the horses, which he consider, considers inferior to the median breed, and the excellent wild cotton, superior to sheep's wool, of which the Indians made their clothes. Yeah, this was what also brought the British, the cotton industry. And then what happened in America? Cotton industry. Besides the legend of the gold ants, one or two Indian fables have crept through Persia into his narrative. Thus the famous story of Hippocleides. Clades, who didn't care when he danced away his wife, seems to have a close parallel in the Jataka story of the silly young peacock who danced, danced so indecently that he shocked the father of the golden goose and lost his wealthy bride. Interesting, because then hippos means horse. Mean horse. <clears throat> Okay, the story of the wife of Intafernes, who pleaded for her brother's life because she could get another son, because she could get another son or husband, but not another brother, has been traced to the Uchanga Jataka. The Hyperboreans, who play such a large part in contemporary Greek legend, are the Indian Uttarakuru transferred rather pointlessly from their home in the holy Himalaya to Europe, where they are quite out of place. Do you see what I'm saying? It's just... And then they bitch about um, intellectual property theft. My goodness. They got every... Anyways. 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 Perhaps this legend may be traced to Hecateus, whose lost work on the Hyperboreans is cited by Pliny. It is difficult, however, to see where Hecateus obtained his information unless the legend was current in Persia at an early date. The praise accorded to Her Herodotus for the ad admirable sobriety and truth of his remarks about India cannot unfortunately be extended to Tessius. Tessius made very poor use of his opportunities. He was for 20 years court physician to Art Artaxerxes Nemon at Susa and retired in 398 BC. He settled in Greece and there he wrote his Indica, fragments of which survive in the abridgment of Photius and in other writers. I prefer a hybrid, but, you know, um, anyways, <laughs> um, it is full of, ex of extravagant stories of monstrous people and strange animals and adds practically nothing to our knowledge of India. Tessius is responsible for most of the grotesque legends about India, which fill the pages of classical and medieval writers to the day to the days of Sir John Mandeville. It may be stated in excuse that these fables are repeated with additions even by sober writers like Megasthenes 
and are not originally due to Greek invention. They were coined in the first instance by the Indians themselves, among whom they apparently originated from ex exaggerated descriptions of the strange features and repulsive customs of the hated Dacius, Aborigin Aborigines, Dravidian, and Mongolian, whom they encountered when the Aryans first invaded India. Dravidian and Mongolian. Interesting. Mongolian, because Genghis Khan did did get Delhi. So, uh, well, I mean, his... his uh, not him, but his family, his descendant. Okay, thus the antipodes of Tessias are the Paschadangulajas of the Mahabharata. The Pygmies are the Kirata. The Mongolian hillmen of Bhutan are the wild tribes or the wild tribes of the Assam frontier perhaps. Okay, so I had done one on the Kirata tribe up in the Himalayas. And then, yeah, this is what I'm saying. It's, it's how you perceive stuff, man. <laughs> My goodness, man. This is just... Even now, even now, you, you go on YouTube and you find all these uh, Western, usually white men, travelers going all around the world and, you know, just making videos, travel videos. And, and even there, you will see is... How the person is, is how they will view the the surroundings. So it's like, one person can go and see this whole different story playing out because that's they're just different. Versus another person goes and sees a completely different story going on because that's how they are on the inside. So it's just, it's just that's just how it is, man. Everybody goes and travels and, 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 shares their thoughts so that's just a reflection of their own perspective their own mind that's all it is like from books to now vlogs travel vlogs that's all it is is what you put out is just a reflection of your own mind all right thus the okay the pygmy blah blah, blah. but this plea will not cover all the sins of omission and commission of Tessius. His Indian animals are as fabulous as his Scipodes and Anthropophagi. Faggy, foggy. And a reference to the fragments of his companion work, the Parasica, shows that his other writings were equally unreliable and uncritical. Yeah, some people just write in a way so, you know, it just sells. That's that's all. That's that's all, man. Certain perspectives just sell more books. That's all it is, man. Alright. Although he had resided for years in Persia and had the opportunity of consulting the royal archives, he adds little or nothing to our knowledge of Persian history. To him, for instance, we owe the fable of the invasion of India by Semiramis and the equally absurd romances attached to the story of the Scythian campaigns of Cyrus the Great. To the Persians, then, Greece owes her first knowledge of India. Darius had both Greeks and Indians as his subjects. Did you hear that? 
Darius had both Greeks and Indians as his subjects. Indian troops formed the light division of the army of Xerxes. I mean, there's even history between Korea and India. How a Korean or an Indian princess married a Korean king or vice versa. Either way. Even, this is what I'm saying. Like, hit, the actual world history is very interesting versus the fucking boring-ass bullshit narrative that they're selling. It's just... I'm just saying... <laughs> history is way more interesting if we just look at it from... all kinds of different views. Why does it only have to be from one perspective is what I'm saying. Why can't it be from everyone's perspective? Or at least the can't it be shared from the the natives' own per fucking perspective instead of the the ones who went and destroyed, raped, and pillaged it? How about we get a chance to tell our own history? Anyways, Darius had both okay. Indian troops formed the light division of of the army of Xerxes. They must have marched through the bloody defiles of Thermopylae, and their usefulness caused them to be retained by Mardonius after the retreat of the king to take part in the Boeotian campaign, which ended so disastrously disastrously as the Asopus Asopus Ionian officers in Persian employ and probably Ionian traders visited the Punjab. But with the gradual breakup of the Persian Empire, the practical independence of eastern Iran, and the war with Greece, the traffic between India and the West sank to practically nothing. Probably the satrapy of the Punjab, like Bactria, owed a merely nominal allegiance as time went on to the court at Susa. The Persian Empire made a profound impression upon the Indian mind. Mm, let's see, where was I? The Karoshti script, introduced no doubt by the Persians in their official documents, remained in use on the northwest frontier till the 4th century AD. The remains of Persian and Babylonian customs at Taxila may point to this place as the capital of the satrapy under the Persian Empire. The Maurya emperors, as we gather from the account given by Megasthenes of the court of Sandrakotus, lived in Persian style. The Indian, like the Persian monarch, lived in seclusion, surrounded by his guards and only appearing at rare intervals. The Buddhist architecture of Ahsoka, with its bell capitals and winged lions, shews many traces of Persian influence. Ahsoka's plan of propagating the Dharma by means of inscriptions upon the face of the rock may have been borrowed from similar practices in vogue among the Persians, for instance, the Behistun inscription. Even the royal road running through the Moria domains finds its parallel in Persia. How this influence precisely crept in we are in our ignorance of the history of the Punjab at this period unable to say 
Was there a vice regal court at Taxila where Sandrakotus had seen the stately Persian ceremonial in practice? Or did he merely assume Persian customs as Alexander and the Syrian Seleucids assumed them? Because Persia, even in decay, remained the greatest and greatest and most imposing empire known to the world at that time. Okay. Um, let's see. Alright, I'm going to go to... Because, well, I'll put a link for this book's PDF. Because, uh, I'm just saying it's interesting. It even has a map, old map of India and its surroundings. And I'm just saying, like, there's a lot of... Okay. I'll just finish up with this a few brief words on the remaining question of the influence of india upon western literature must be added in in conclusion here again we must beware of unwarranted assumptions based upon coincidence there is however good evidence for the steady migration of folk tales from east to west from the time of the jataka stories Many Eastern legends have found their way into Europe and may be found in the Gesta Roma Norum, the Deca Maron, and other medieval collections. This was very largely due to the Arabs of Damascus, who translated much Sanskrit literature and transmitted it in this way to Europe. A typical instance are the famous fables of Bidpai or Pilpay. They were translated from the Sanskrit Pancha Tantra into Persian by Barzuye in the time of Nushirvan, king of Persia. From Persian, they were turned into Arabic by Abdallah ibn Mokaffa at the court of Ibn Jafar al-Mansur at Baghdad. About the same time at the neighboring court of Damascus, St. John of Damascus also wrote Barlam and Josephat, which, as we have seen, contains numerous Buddhist stories and apologues. This is what I'm saying, man. Like, they're, they can, they're calling it Stoicism now, but it's... Anyways, thus the well-known story of the three caskets found its way into the Merchant of Venice. Did you hear that? Even Shakespeare. Thus, too, Chaucer was enabled to embody in his partner's tale a Buddhist parable taken from the Vedaba Jataka. On the whole subject, however, the words of a recent writer are worth remember remembering. All these parallels prove nothing. In the first place, a large number of them can be considered parallels only by straining the sense of the term, and in the second place, they are the results of obviously independent, though partially similar processes in the development of Greek and San Sanskrit literature and should be treated accordingly. <laughs> I'm just saying, which 
which civilization is older. That's all I'm saying. It's just, I mean, if we're going to be logical, I'm just saying which, which civilization is older. So, <laughs> the Silk Road, Buddhism, horses, chariots, language, food, stories, religion. I'm just saying, like... I'm just saying if you look at the if you look at the facts from what it looks like the Vatican <laughs> appropriated a lot of stuff that's all I'm saying all kinds of stuff actual physical goods and fucking um um uh, what the fuck? Intellectual property. <clears throat> I'm just saying. Like, why can't we all just agree that... <laughs> well, until we can even face history. <laughs> until we can even fucking face our history, there's not going to be no fucking change, so... It, from what it looks like, it looks like the same old bullshit story. They're just, it's just the same old bullshit story. We don't, we don't even want to admit our fucking history. So there you go. That's why history repeats itself because we don't even want to look at it, learn from it, admit it. So that's why we keep doing the same bullshit story. We keep, keep playing out the same bullshit story, man. Well. I don't know what to say, man. Until this changes, nothing else will change. So, it's the same. It's business as usual, I guess. Peace. <laughs>